0: Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Wow. Very good. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Listen, if you are at church at spring break week on time change Sunday, you love Jesus. (laughs) If you're in the first service, you really love Jesus. So I'm impressed by you already that uh, you are here today. Hey, let me just say this to you about about your pastor. Something that I'm sure you already know, but let me just affirm it to you as someone who's also a pastor. I know a lot of different ministry leaders across the country. I stepped away from being the lead pastor uh, of the church I serve, Journey Christian Church. As Pastor Collins said, I've served as a lead pastor for 42 years. My last day was January 1st of 2023. They had a kind of a celebratory service. It was a great time. I get up to speak at the end, I look out, and right about, right there, right where the sound uh, booth is, sat Pastor Colin with one of his daughters. He came to be there for me on that last day. Pastor Colin is not only a gifted preacher, as you know, and a tremendous leader, he is a kind and considerate friend. And I want you to know that. And uh, it is an honor to be asked to come and share with the Nona Church family. It's a sacred trust when one pastor asks another pastor to come and uh, share a word. And I don't take that lightly, and it's a, a joy to be with you today. In fact, I would say this. Today is a glorious day. Now, not just because I get to be with the Nona Church family, although I love that, In fact, I would say that this day is one of my favorite days of the year because this is the day that college basketball fans like me wait for all year long. (laughs) Today is Selection Sunday for the NCAA Men's Basketball Championship. (laughs) Amen. And I cannot wait to see those beautiful, bewildering brackets tonight at 6 p.m., And then starting this Tuesday in Dayton, Ohio, March Madness will officially begin culminating three weekends later with the crowning of this year's champion, while along the way absolutely wreaking havoc on bracket pools and challenges across the USA. One of the biggest reasons this tournament is commonly referred to as March Madness is something called buzzer beaters, not buzzard beaters. That's something people in Kentucky do to certain kind of birds we don't like. Some of the less basketball-minded among us may ask, what on earth, pastor, is a buzzer beater? Here's a definition I found. A buzzer beater is a shot that wins or in some cases ties a game at the last possible moment. A buzzer beater is a shot that changes a sure defeat to a surprising victory. Just like that. What looked like a certain loss suddenly becomes a celebratory triumph. The NCAA basketball tournament always has some memorable buzzer-beating moments, and I expect this year's tournament to supply its fair share as well. That's why, in my opinion, it's the greatest sporting event of the year. But last week, I ran across a buzzer-beater story that occurred in my home state of Kentucky at a high school basketball district tournament game, that I have to tell you about. I'm going to set it up for you, and I'm going to show you a quick clip. Five seconds left in the game. District championship on the line between two rival teams. The ball is inbounded to a sophomore guard from Gallatin County High School named Matt Griffin. Four seconds. Three seconds. An opposing player comes up to press. Griffin spins away from him. Two seconds, one second. Griffin dribbles once, pulls up, and lets it fly. It isn't, it's not even a half-court shot. There was no time for him to get to half-court. It's a two-handed heave from at least three-quarters of the court away. The buzzer sounds as the ball's in flight. Every eye traces the shot's arc from Griffin's hand to the waiting hoop. The ball hits inside of the rim, swishes through the net. Pandemonium erupts. Here's a brief video of that shot with commentary from a local news broadcast. Take a look at this. With his team down by three points in the final 20 seconds of the district championship, Matthew Griffith made this game-tying three-pointer. And his next shot would be the shot. This shot captures the moment from the court. Isn't that amazing? But as great as that shot was, that's not the best part of that story. Two weeks earlier, the kid who hit that shot, you can see his picture there along with his family. He's the one holding the trophy. Matt Griffin had just been adopted by the coach of the team on Valentine's Day out of foster care. Matt Griffin got something bigger than a trophy. He was gifted the treasure of a family. Today, in our last word series, where we're looking at some of the final things Jesus said just before he died, we're going to see that buzzer beaters not only happen in games on the court, they can sometimes happen even when you're hanging on a cross. Luke tells the story that we're going to look at in chapter 23. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed, When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals. One on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And by the way, Pastor Colin opened this series last week with one of the best messages on forgiveness I've ever heard. And if you did not get a chance to hear that or watch that, I want to encourage you to do that because that's the text that Pastor Colin preached on last week. It was outstanding. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, "'Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise.'" When a career criminal, gasping for his final breath, asks Jesus for mercy and gets it, when one who lived like hell all of his life gets promised heaven just moments before he died, friends, that's not just grace, that's what I call buzzer-beating grace. What in the world was Jesus trying to teach us when he offered a dying outlaw eternal life? The conversation between Jesus and the thief on the cross brings up the subject of what many have referred to over the years as deathbed conversions or 11th hour conversions. Is it possible for people who've lived in rebellion against God all their life to come to their dying hour and say, Lord, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And make it. Boy, that really bothers some of us who are career Christians, who've hung around the church all of our life and tried really hard to follow the Ten Commandments and the Golden Rule and the Epistles and the Apostles and the Beatitudes and all the other important attitudes. We're tempted to say, that's not fair. We're like those whiny workers in the vineyard that Jesus talked about one time. You remember that story? A vineyard owner goes out to the marketplace early in the morning and he contracts some workers. He went out at 9 in the morning, hired some more. He went back at noon, did the same thing. Goes back at 3 in the afternoon and hired even more. And then he went back one hour before quitting time and he hired still more. When it came time to settle up with the day laborers, they were all paid the same wage. The guys who worked all day long and bore the heat of the day said, wait a minute. This isn't fair. You're paying a guy who worked only one hour the same as you paid us who worked all day, and they were right. It wasn't fair. But Jesus wasn't teaching about economic fairness or workers' rights or equitable employee pay scales. He was teaching about grace, and grace by definition is not fair. Grace is not justice. Grace is not a matter of what is deserved. Grace is not a matter of entitlement or equality. Grace is grace. It's getting what I need but don't deserve. It's getting God's riches at Christ's expense. It is the unmerited favor of God, or in keeping with Jesus' vineyard worker story, it's being paid for work that you didn't do. And that brings us back to this dying thief on the cross next to Jesus. I like what a Puritan theologian once said about this story of the thief on the cross. He said, there is one story in God's sovereignty that he allowed in the Bible that tells us about the dying thief. There is one incident that tells us that, yes, Jesus will save you on your deathbed, one that we might have hope, but only one that we might not presume upon God. I heard about a pastor who was preaching about the urgency of trusting Christ as your Savior. And he was preaching on this text from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, where Paul wrote, Today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. And a man in the audience yelled right out in the middle of the sermon, What about the thief on the cross, preacher? The pastor replied without missing a beat, Sir, which thief are you talking about? There were two thieves that died next to Jesus. One was saved and one was not. One was delivered from his sin. The other died in his sin. Listen to me. If you've always had in the back of your mind that you're going to be like this dying thief, that you have in some strange way said to yourself, I'm going to wait until I'm ready to die and repent and give my life to Jesus, just like that dying thief did. I'm going to live my life the way I want to and take all I can get from this world, and then I'm going to ask God for mercy in the 11th hour. If that's what you think, you are missing the point of God's grace. You see, many people see faith in Jesus as nothing more than eternal fire insurance, a sort of of get-out-of-hell-free card. But they see it as having little or no impact on how they live their lives now, which is woefully misguided. And when you say you want to repent at the end like the thief did, you're making two seriously misguided assumptions. The first is assuming that living as the world lives is the best way to live. And that's simply not true. In fact, that's a lie. The Proverbs writer says this, the way of a transgressor is hard. A disobedient, rebellious life is a tough life. Paul says this, Paul says this to the church in Galatia, a man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction, discord, dysfunction, disease, disappointment, and disillusionment follow those who live only to please themselves. It's been said that sin at first draws, then it drags, and then it drives. But above all, you're misunderstanding the fragile nature of life. You are naively assuming you will be conscious and mentally capable of making a rational decision, and that is risky, to say the least. There's an old saying that goes like this. Many who plan to be saved in the 11th hour died at 1030. And all I'm saying to you is this. Don't see this thief as some sort of last-second buzzer-beating hero that you want to be like. See him rather as a crucified crook who became a grateful recipient of God's amazing grace. So with that as a background, let's consider some important questions about this dying thief's prayer and what it means to us today. Number one, who was this thief that offered this prayer? Well, to begin with, he's not named. The New Testament calls him a criminal in general and a robber in particular, but not a robber as we know a robber today. He was not just guilty of breaking and entering motivated by greed. The word criminal indicates he was really a revolutionist. He and his companion on the other side of Jesus were most likely part of a Jewish underground movement working to overthrow Rome. Some would call him a terrorist. Since they were not able to organize armies and fight in the open, they resorted to the life of an outlaw by gathering in guerrilla groups that sought to inflict as much covert pain on the Roman oppressors as they possibly could. It's a great likelihood that this thief had done more than take a few dollars. He'd probably taken a few lives in his day. By the way, you ever wonder how Jesus wound up in the middle of these two? Not by accident that Jesus was placed in the center right in the middle of these two outlaws. The arrangement of the crosses was a final, spiteful attempt to humiliate Jesus. You see, according to Roman law, when more than two criminals were crucified together, the worst of the bunch was put in the center. But it goes deeper than that. I think the religious leaders had a hand in the arrangement of the crosses. Perhaps they were reminded of how throughout his ministry Jesus befriended notorious sinners and outcasts. Maybe they remembered how Jesus explained his fellowship with Matthew the tax collector and his tax-collecting cronies by saying that he'd come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. All right, they sneered. Since he made sinners his companion in life, we'll let him die right between them, right in the middle of them. And so they crucified Jesus between two thieves, one on the right and one on the left. I heard about a rich old man who was dying, and he sent for his accountant and his attorney to come to his home at once. When they arrived, they were quickly ushered up to his bedroom. As they entered the room, the old man held out his hands, and he motioned for one to stand on each side of the bed. The old man grasped their hands, sighed contentedly, and smiled while staring at the ceiling. No one said anything for quite some time. Both the accountant accountant, accountant and attorney were touched that the old man would ask them to be with him during his final moments But they were also puzzled because he had never given any indication that he particularly liked either one of them. And finally, the lawyer asked, Mr. Smith, why did you ask the two of us to come here? The old man looked up and weakly said, I just want to die the way Jesus did. (laughs) Now, if you didn't get that, you asked Pastor Colin to explain that to you when you get back. And if you were offended by that, you write, Pastor Colin at Nona Church. In verse 42 to 23, Luke writes that the thief addressed Jesus by name. He said, "'Jesus, remember me.'" Some Bible scholars have suggested that perhaps Jesus and this criminal had known each other before this dark hour on Calvary, that maybe this outlaw heard Jesus speak at one time or another. Maybe he'd seen him love the lowly, dying with the down and out, or stand up for those that others couldn't stand. Jesus was a well-known and much-watched personality before his death. So, that's entirely possible. Maybe he did hear him before, or maybe not. However, it's interesting to me that this is the only time that somebody called him simply Jesus in the Gospels. Are you aware of that? See, everyone else that met him called him Master, or Rabbi, or Teacher, or Lord, or Christ, or Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus, Son of David. But nobody ever called him just Jesus. Jesus, with the exception of this outlaw, if Jesus and this nameless criminal had never met before, then all this outlaw knew about him was what he heard from the bloodthirsty crowd and from what Jesus had prayed just a few minutes earlier for his enemies, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And from what the sign read above his head, if all he knew about Jesus was what he heard and saw that day, a beaten, swollen, slashed, nail-suspended preacher with a blood-soaked face, then his prayer for salvation is even more remarkable. A second question we need to ask, why did he pray to Jesus now? Well, it's obvious he wasn't praying, seeking an easy way out of a bad situation. Being saved wasn't going to get him off the cross. In fact, he rebuked his partner in crime for even making such a self-serving suggestion. The other criminal said this to Jesus, "'Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us.'" In other words, get us out of here. Prove your divine power by coming down off the cross and and set us free as well. No doubt, that was the majority opinion that day. It is unimaginable to think that a person could do something about this desperate, pain-filled circumstance and choose not to, that he would just take whatever this malicious mob dishes out when he didn't have to. That's still hard to believe. So the one thief says, don't just hang there, man. Do something. You see, the other criminal did not suffer over being what he was, He only suffered in being where he was. And this gets to the heart of genuine repentance. When people have asked me over the years what repentance means, I often show them these two thieves dying next to Jesus. Because like these two thieves, there are some people who are sorry not for what they did. They're merely sorry that they got caught. Their rule of life is this. Do unto others before they do unto you and then get the heck out of town. Only this time, he didn't get away fast enough. His main regret was in the fact that he was where he was, not that he was who he was. But the criminal who petitioned Jesus on behalf of his eternity as not to be let let off the hook for his present suffering, he accepted his sentence as just and deserved. And we know that because the first time he speaks, he says not to Jesus, but to the other criminal. Look what he says. Don't you fear God since you're under the same sins? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. His only appeal was to be remembered by Jesus in glory. You see, this thief was sorry not just for where he was, but for what he was. Somehow against the backdrop of the innocence of Jesus, this outlaw saw himself for what he really was, not merely as a rebel against human authority, but as a rebel against the authority of God, a sinner separated from his creator by a life of deceit and violence and passing pleasures. And somehow, somehow he realized this man in the middle was his only hope to find forgiveness and peace and ultimate freedom. And I got to tell you, it's in such moments that Jesus is at his best. Had this dying thief compared himself with the other outlaw cursing on the opposite side? Or had he compared himself to the self-righteous religious crowd sneering and jeering below him? He might have thought, you know, I got just as good a shot as they do. But he could not boast once he had really seen Jesus. When you really see Jesus, the innocent Son of God, the one who is just and the one who justifies, dying undeservedly for my sins and your sins, you begin to understand what repentance is all about. You see, whenever there's a sense of the holiness of God, there's a sense of human sin. And the more vivid the vision of God's holiness, the more piercing the sense of humanity's fallenness. And we really truly see on the cross God at his best and humanity at its worst. We've looked at who prayed, we looked at why he prayed. Let's think about what did he pray? His prayer is addressed to Jesus, in whom he saw not just a man, but a king. Look at what he said. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What an astounding insight this guy had. I wonder how he knew about Christ's kingdom. You see, the kingship of Jesus was the center of sarcasm in this black hour of human history. It was precisely by accusing Jesus of being a pretender to the throne that the Jewish high priest and his envious associates engineered his condemnation. Jesus plainly told them, my kingdom's not of this world, even Pilate. The Roman governor who presided over Jesus' travesty of a trial knew this charge was bogus. He could see through their phony allegiance to Caesar. He was eager to set Jesus free, and he came so close to doing so. But then somebody shouted out, if you let him go, you're no friend of Caesar. That sealed Jesus' death. Pilate's record was already shaky with his bosses back in Rome. And cost him what it might, he couldn't politically afford to let that rumor spread any further. So Pilate finally said, he's all yours. I wash my hands of him. And when the people saw that Pilate had unwittingly condemned Jesus as a pretender to the throne, they quickly took up the farce. The soldiers said in their mocking, A king must be properly dressed. So they draped a scarlet robe around him. A king needs a crown. And so they pushed a wreath of thorns deep into his brow. And as a punchline to the joke, Pilate placed above his head a sign that read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. But at least to one man on that Good Friday, the kingship of Jesus was no laughing matter. With incredible insight, this outlaw saw in the man who was dying at his side a king who could grant favors beyond death. Three things I want you to know quickly about this amazing prayer. Number one, it was a personal prayer. He said, Jesus, remember me. He was praying for his lost soul. Not a selfish prayer, but a salvation prayer. Friends, prayer shouldn't be selfish, but it can and must be personal. And this is about as personal as it gets. Number two, it was a prayer of faith. Tremendous faith. Faith. In fact, I would say a prayer of greater faith you'll not, you're not going to find anywhere in the Scriptures. Note he did not pray, if you come into your kingdom. No, he said this, when you come into your kingdom. There was a certainty about his request that touched the heart of the Savior. One time a desperate father came to Jesus and requested healing for his demon-tormented son. But here's how he asked Jesus to heal his son. He said, if you can do anything take pity on us and help us. And Jesus replied, if you can, everything is possible for him who believes. And then the father quickly cries out, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. But there were no ifs from this crucified crook who hung next to Jesus. He said, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? Thirdly, it was a simple prayer he did not know all the these and thous and the holy hokey pokey that people play who hang around the temple all the time. His prayer was not rehearsed or refined or even particularly riveting. He didn't say, Lord Jesus Christ, justify me. Sanctify me, Lord. Redeem me or even bless me. No, he said, Jesus, would you remember me? I love how unchurched people just put things more directly and simply that many of us who've hung around the church all of our life and those of us who know the religious code words and the appropriate expressions and we've got all the insider's information for the initiated. It's so refreshing to be around people who cut through all the religious jargon and they just put it out there where everybody can get it. True story. Several years ago, I was baptizing a guy. And at that time, I'm not sure why. I'd have, When I baptized a guy, I held my hand up like this. Maybe you've seen that done before. You kind of hold your hand up, and I would say, because you believe in Jesus in your heart, you confess him with your mouth, I now baptize you in the name. And I could tell the time I was going through my spiel, this guy I'm baptizing, he was just looking at me, and he looked at my hand, and he looked at his hand, and he looked at my hand, and he looked at his hand. When I finished my spiel, he just hit me a high five, just like that. Just, and you know when you celebrate, like up top, you know? I mean, he didn't know. I loved it. I thought it was the coolest thing. You know what? Listen to me. When you're hanging on a cross, you're not trying to impress anybody. There's no time for meaningless eloquence and empty rituals. So this uncouth, unchurched, uninitiated, hardened criminal addresses Jesus, the Son of God, by saying, Jesus, any chance you could put in a good word for me? And Jesus said, consider it done, my friend. And that brings us to the fourth and final question. How was his prayer answered? If the outlandish request of an outlaw surprises you, the answer from the sinless Son of God will stun you. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus not only answered, he answered affirmatively, he answered assuredly, he answered absolutely. I tell you the truth. Whenever Jesus started a statement with that phrase, whatever followed it was serious stuff. Kind of like your mom using your first and middle name. You knew it was a serious matter. But if she ever said your full name, John Allen Hampton, mama was about to speak a life-giving truth. And repeatedly, when Jesus wanted to emphasize the seriousness of a statement, he would preface it by saying, truly. Truly, I say unto you, the old King James says, verily, verily, I say unto you. The new international translation says, I tell you the truth. In other words, he was saying, listen, you can believe this, you can trust this, you can take this to the bank, you can rest assured, you can bet the farm on it, you can bet your life on it. In fact, you can stake your eternity on what I'm about to tell you. I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. That is what I call a statement of assurance. Years ago, I heard an old preacher preaching on this text. And he said, the thief on the cross couldn't sing precious memories (laughs) because the memories from his misspent life of crime were not very precious. But when Jesus spoke these precious words of pardon, he could sing blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. There are three blessed assurances I want to give you as I close. Number one, there is the assurance of life beyond the grave. Did you ever wonder what the people below the cross thought as these two talked together on the cross? Did those people standing there actually hear what they were saying to each other? Did they marvel that these two men in agony and humiliation in this present world could talk so confidently to each other about the world to come? I mean, the Jewish religious leaders and the Roman soldiers thought they had Jesus nailed down, literally. They arrested him, they beat him, they whipped him, they mocked him, they taunted him, they stabbed him, they drove spikes into him, and yet here he is on the cross talking about eternity to a first century version of Jesse James that had to be frustrating to them. It's as if in this conversation, Jesus and this outlaw transcended this gruesome scene at Calvary, and for a few moments at least, they glimpse into glory together. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise, as death cannot stop me, no more can it stop you. There's an old verse I've often quoted at funerals. It goes like this, weep not for me, let not one tear fall. For what you dream of, i now see. And friends, it's worth it all. And it's like Jesus is saying, I know where we're going after this, and trust me, friend, you made the right choice. Secondly, there's the assurance of relationship beyond death. Jesus said this, today you will be with me. One Bible scholar wrote that the term paradise is actually a Persian word, meaning a walled garden. When a Persian king wished to bestow a very special honor on one of his subjects, he made him a companion of the garden, which meant he was chosen to walk in the garden with the king. It would be like the President of the United States inviting you to spend the day with him in the Rose Garden or to hang out with him in the West Wing. Friends, more than immortality is promised here by Jesus. He's promising this penitent thief an honored place as a companion with him in the Garden of the Courts of Heaven. Listen to me. Heaven is not just a place where the penalty of sin is escaped. Heaven is a place where the presence of God is enjoyed. Heaven is so much more. And immunity from prosecution. Heaven is a place where there is immensity of joy that comes just from being with Jesus. The psalmist declared, you have made known to me, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. When Jesus spoke of heaven to his disciples, he did not focus on the residences that we will inhabit. He focused on the relationships that will continue. He said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trusting God, you also trust in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. And look at this. And take you to be with me that where and you also may be where I am. Revelation describes heaven as a place where the dwelling of God will be with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. My wife Melinda and I have moved several times in our 39 years of marriage, and we've lived in many different houses. When we're in the process of moving from one house to another, I tend to get a little nostalgic, and I almost always think, I'm going to miss this house. I'm going to come back here and check on it from time to time, but you know what? I hardly have ever done that. And to be truthful, I rarely think about those former houses. We literally now live around the corner from the first house we lived in when we moved to Florida 13 years ago. And by the way, that's 13 years ago today. I rarely think of that house, even though we frequently walk by it in our evening walks. You see, I've learned that it's not about the structure or the location. It's the relationships that make a house a home. From an earthly perspective, wherever Melinda is is home to me in this present world you say what about your kids friends listen your kids are born they're with you for a season we love them and then they leave us hopefully but wherever my wife is is my earthly home it's not the location that matters it's the relationship and heaven It's going to feel like home even though we've never been there before. You know why? Because our Father is there. The last and final assurance is there's always hope available for the living. If you learn nothing else from this incredible scene at the cross, know this, while there's life, there's always hope. If this story tells us nothing else, it tells us it's never too late to trust Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. Friends, as long as the human heart beats, the invitation of Jesus still stands. If you have a pulse, God has a promise. And if you don't believe that, then consider these great words written by Max Lucado several years ago. Max wrote right now, there's a grinning ex-con walking the golden streets who knows more about grace than a thousand theologians. No one else would have given him a prayer, but in the end, that's all he had. And in the end, that's all he needed. Amen. John Newton was the composer of the best-loved hymn of all time, Amazing Grace. Some of you may know that story. Newton was a converted former slave trader who lived in the 18th century. And he once said this, When I get to heaven, I shall see three wonders there. The first wonder will be to see many people whom I did not expect to see. The second wonder will be to miss many people whom I did expect to see. And the third and greatest wonder of all, will be to find myself there. Friends, the thief on the cross, John Newton, John Hampton, and everyone else will get to heaven the same way because God's grace is greater than our disgrace. God's love covers our losses and God's mercy overrides all of our messes. Stand with me right now. Would you stand? thank you that we are reminded once again of how amazing your grace really is, how deep your love goes. Father, thank you for allowing us to look at this story. And as the old Puritan theologian said, yes, there is a story that we might have hope. only one that we might not presume upon you because those of us who are here today, those of us that are watching online, we are aware, we know, we hear, we can respond and I pray that would be true for anyone right now who needs to trust Christ as their Savior and Lord today. Now is the acceptable time. Now is today today the day of salvation. And Father, for any who may come here or again online, and they're thinking there's no way, there's no way I'll ever make it. I've done too much. I've messed up more than my share. There's no way. I pray, Father, they would be encouraged by your grace that is greater than our disgrace by your love that covers our losses and by your mercy that overrides all of our messes we thank you for that now in jesus name we all agreed and prayed and we said